0: Oh, Father, we stand here. Our every motion is under the watchful eye and the power of our Savior. And we stand in His name. Amen. Now you may sit in His name. I'm going to ask you to open this morning once again to Romans chapter 8. And we will focus our attention this morning on verses 26 and 27. And so Paul writes to the Church of Rome, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according To the will of God, O Father, open to us the deep meanings of the word of God this morning and let us receive them, be nourished by them, and grow thereby, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have these two verses. We'll begin with verse 26 this morning where Jesus writes, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now when I look at these passages, these these verses, there are a couple of things that come to mind. And as you might have guessed, like many of the verses, particularly from the book of Romans and particularly from chapter 8, there are controversies regarding the exact meanings of the apostle in certain areas. So there are three immediate questions that come to my mind when I look at that verse, and I would imagine they would come to anyone's mind. You know, when you preach the gospel a lot, I've been doing this for 27 years, and I've been a Christian for some years longer than that. When you go to a a text like this, you have to approach it as though you've never seen it before. And you have to go in and look at it anew and with fresh eyes. And what I do is I try to go to a number of the great commentators. We have so many at our disposal. Certainly from the Puritan era, we have Matthew Henry's commentaries. We have John Calvin uh, from the 16th century. His commentaries are on my shelf. I have John Gill. I have J. Vernon McGee from the 1980s. I have lately looked into the commentaries of uh, John MacArthur. And as you know, I quote very much and look into the commentaries of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I consider to be my intellectual mentor since I came into faith in Christ. And his witness to me has always been a powerful one. And also his scholarship and his knowledge of history and his approach to exegesis. So I use all of these things to sort of go into it to make sure I'm not making something up when I look at it, because we tend to just go by our own understanding of what the verse says, and sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. Um, So he writes, likewise the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. Now, the three immediate questions that come to mind as I read the verses, first, to what is Paul referring when he uses the word likewise? It has to refer to something that went before, right? The second concern is, what are the groanings? The third concern, the third question that I'll take up this morning based on this text is who does the groaning? So let's begin. Number one, likewise is the Greek word humoyos. It means very simply in like manner. Humoyos, in like manner. And so we may read this verse like this. In like manner the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. Agreed? And so when Paul uses the word likewise, it's important for us to ask, in like manner of what? If likewise is to be used as the first word in a sentence, we ought to be able to look at a previous thought in the text and locate what this action of the Spirit refers to. Now, we spoke last week in previous verses The apostle was speaking of our hope of glorification. Remember that? We labored over that to some extent. We are going to be glorified when we see Christ. And he even spoke of creation being united with us in this. We have a, a, a union of some kind. A creature reunion with the created order that is around us. And creation being personified by the apostle was said to be longing for our glorification so creation itself could be glorified with us. And we talked about that last week. Creation is longing for something, hoping and striving for its own promised perfection and renewal from the initial curse. When man fell, friends, when the Lord of the kingdom fell, the kingdom fell with it. And then the apostle went on to speak of hope. And we spoke of this a few weeks ago. If you don't remember that, because um, you know, I, during the Christmas season, we did some, we deviated from the course of Romans eight and went back. And I've been doing some review, but I want you to know all of those sermons are online. They're on YouTube, and and Pastor Bill puts them on sermon audio before he leaves on Sunday. So uh, go on and uh, come up to date, because when you're in a series, it's good to not miss um, uh, the, the parts as we uh, put the whole thing together. But um, we spoke a few weeks ago on the subject of hope. And so Paul ended the hope discussion with this verse. If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. All right? So it seems to me that to suggest that the likewise in verse 26 refers to the hope of verse 25 doesn't settle well with me. It makes little sense to me. It would read like this. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. It seems an unnatural progression to me to compare hope with weakness. Hope strengthens us in our weaknesses and so I suppose it could be argued that the spirit also strengthens us in our weaknesses and that could suggest a natural progression and that I think is certainly the most popular treatment of the passage we were hoping but the spirit is helping it says but hoping and helping are not similar things It seems unnatural for me to read the passage in this way. We are hoping, likewise, the Spirit is helping. Do you understand my quandary? Is it just me? (laughs) I would expect a passage constructed in this way to read like this. We are hoping, likewise, the Spirit is hoping too. Similar things. But we know that the Spirit does not hope. Did you know that? God's not hoping things work out. Right? Hope doesn't pertain to God. Why? Because God sees the end from the beginning, and hope that is seen is not hope. God's not sitting around hoping. You know, I remember when I came into the faith many years ago, there were these popular novels that came out. The Frank Peretti novels. Anybody remember those? I was talking about... The, I never read one of them, but I, I tried. But... Um, uh, the, the, the novels were something like, and, and, and I don't mean to disparage this if, I've got to, if, if I'm mischaracterizing it, and these are favorite stories of yours, but uh, what I remember is there were these angels, and they were sitting around just wondering what was going to happen with creation. God just can't work because the saints won't pray. If only the saints would pray, we could act. And, you know, as though the whole world is engineered by angels and the saints praying. Friends, God designed the end from the beginning with all those things worked out. So we don't have to wonder if God is ever, as Gwen Kimball used to say, at his wit's end. God is not at his wit's end. He's not hoping things work out. God is always certain of the final outcome of all things because he designed it. We're told that he knows the end from the beginning. That is, there is no such thing as divine hope. Hope is for us. And we're assured in verse 28 that all things work together for good to those who love God. God's not hoping for things. God is directing things. And the Holy Spirit, likewise, is directing things. For the Holy Spirit is God. So what's my contention, and why would I bother with all this? Considering the tendency in New Testament writers to teach in a sort of... Well, you know what I mean if I say stream of consciousness... Certain writers write in a stream of consciousness. James Joyce, the Irish poet, was known for that. They just sort of go from one subject to the other. Now, I'm going. I'm not going to. I'm going to critique Paul's writing style, but I'm not criticizing it. Um, but I want you to know a couple of things about inspiration, because we. When I do this, I'm always afraid someone's going to say, "That's the word of God. You can't critique it." But. Um, Paul speaks in a sort of stream of consciousness. He goes from one subject to the other. And I know why he does that. You see, I'm very intimate with Paul. I know why he does that because I'm a preacher and I know why. And so he goes in and he's, he's making a, a proclamation about something, but he knows that after he gets down from the pulpit, that Donnie or Brian or Steve is going to say, why didn't you say this? And so he says it, and then it leads to the next thing. And then he has to qualify that. And then he leads to the next thing. And you can see it working out as he writes it, and I'll show you as we go through it. Um, So it's my contention that they sort of go on a stream of consciousness which flows freely from one subject to another, and there's no shortage in our text of what a modern reader would call run-on sentences. All right, Now, that's not just because... I was an English major in college and taught a little high school English, all right? Um, Peter does the same thing. He goes on for several paragraphs without a period. Friends, there's very big differences between Greek and English. I don't know if you know this, but the original manuscripts didn't even have spaces between words. No one used capitals. You didn't use a capital for the beginning of a sentence. If you ever see it or you wrote it out, transliterated it into English, it's it's sort of like a, a, you know how a website has several words in a row? It's the whole book is written that way, you know what I mean, um, which would make it even more difficult. You use a capital for indenting a paragraph or beginning a new paragraph. They didn't indent, but they began a new paragraph. So there's all these differences in writing styles. But Peter goes on for several paragraphs without a period. So does Paul. And in the midst of the teaching, they introduce several themes and subjects for our understanding. And I suggest that it's what that what we're seeing here is that very thing. We see it in Puritan writings as well, 1,500 years later. If you ever read uh, Thomas Watson or Charnock or, um, I mean, John Owen, you'll find that they go on and on exhaustively, almost meanderingly um, in their writing. And and basically today, I I think it's because the, the curse is taking its toll on us more and more as the years go by. Our attention spans are not that great anymore. I don't know if that's the reason, but we like short, punctuated sentences that go from one subject and complete that and then go over here. But Paul doesn't do that. He mixes things in. If I read the word likewise to mean and the text to say, in like manner the Holy Spirit, then I would expect that the subject referred to would have to do with the Spirit's action from a previous sentence. Right? The question is which verse? He's referring to something he's already said, but what's he referring to? In my opinion, we have to go all the way back to verse 14 to see that. So let me go back there for you. Paul wrote, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Do you remember those verses? All about the Holy Spirit. All about the actions of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Paul's attempt to reveal the formerly secret action of the Holy Spirit, it's a marvelous teaching. It's comforting. But in doing so, he brings up another subject altogether, which is the subject of suffering. And so you see, as Paul says, where heirs of God joint heirs with Christ, he introduces this This conditional clause, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. And so he interjects a sort of parenthesis, if you will, for the next eight verses to deal with the subject of suffering. He's brought up suffering now, which is a digression from what he was talking about. But he has to develop that a little bit and then show us that the antidote to suffering is hope. But then he's going back to tell us again about all the marvelous workings of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so he speaks on the suffering that we feel uh, being shared with the suffering of creation. You remember that thing. And here he unfolds a completely new su- uh, subject, that is, the yearning hopefulness of creation itself. It seems creation has a stake in our final glorification as the antecedent of its own final and wonderful perfection. In other words, creation can't be perfected until we are, but, that, but he's deviated from his talk of the function of the Holy Spirit to get us here. So he speaks of the groaning of creation. From here in verses 24 and 25, he speaks of the sustaining power of hope that attends people of faith. And he goes on to develop the character of hope. It's invisible in nature, for hope that is seen is not seen. He then declares the power of hope to produce perseverance and faith. And this perseverance is the unmistakable sign of the truly faithful. If you're faithful in Christ, if your faith is real, you will persevere to the end. And it's only at this point that he interjects the word likewise. Likewise can't refer to all those things. To connect the word with hope, as I've said, it seems to me as unnatural, even undoctrinal. For God sees the end from the beginning and therefore does not hope because hope that is seen is not hope as we've said. And so from his teaching on the action of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the apostle interjects a number of different subjects. He speaks of suffering. He talks about our connection with nature. He talks about nature's longings. He speaks of glorification. He talks of hope and finally of perseverance. And these are all wonderful teachings. And we've not neglected these teachings in previous weeks. But now Paul's returning To a former subject that began before this parenthetic list of other qualities. He returns to his previous subject, it seems to me, which concerns the nature and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. At this juncture, he speaks specifically to the Holy Spirit's role in prayer. And so the likewise of verse 26 refers to the Spirit's aforementioned work. So the parenthetic passage, notwithstanding, the natural reading of the passage would go something like this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you like that? I think that some of the confusion we find from the Bible text chosen for the sermon text of the day is that sometimes we choose a passage that's simply too short. It has to do with other things. It's too short for us to receive the full intended meaning and the flow of ideas of the writer. I think we fall into that sometimes as preachers. But if the whole of the passage was being read aloud as it surely was in the Roman church, the connection between the two functions of the Spirit would make for a more natural progression of ideas. So, if we accept my breakdown of the text, Paul is returning to a teaching specifically trained upon the action of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And so he writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 14, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, verse 15. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, verse 16. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, verse 17. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses, verse 26. So the spirit bears witness of who we are in Christ. Number one, the Spirit casts out fear. The Spirit comes alongside our own spirits and communicates to us inwardly that we belong to the Father in heaven and may call upon him as Abba, Father. The Spirit signs the adoption papers of the children of God in the courts of God. The Spirit reads the will and testament of God and says that we are the rightful heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And finally he tells us we'll be glorified and then says the spirit is with us in our weaknesses. And he names the weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. That's the residual weakness of our sinful, unglorified flesh. And so due to this weakness, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought but have no fear The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we've answered our first question. To what does the word likewise refer? It refers to this myriad of ministry functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and brings us down to this one function of interceding in our prayer life. This progression of the text is in keeping with the overall theme of chapter 8, which is the assurance chapter of our salvation. That's why Paul can go immediately into verse 28, which says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. You see the connection? All things Even our weaknesses, even our lack of knowledge of God's will is no liability to us. We have an in-house intercessor. For the intervention of the Holy Spirit perfects our prayers and becomes our strength. If the Holy Spirit did not reside within us and provide this essential function, we would derail our own salvation. Without his attending aid, our minds would be susceptible to every suggestion of Satan. You would be the devil's plaything because of your residual human weaknesses had not the Holy Spirit taken up residence in your heart and attended you in that weakness. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, our minds would be susceptible to every suggestion of Satan. But praise God, we're not left to ourselves. The Spirit of God attends us continually, prayerfully interceding on our behalf at the throne of grace. Now, I know we tend to think that this is sort of like an intermittent function of the Spirit, like, well, the other day I was very confused and I didn't know what to pray for, but I know the Holy Spirit was praying for me. Let me tell you something. Even the prayers you think you know what you're praying for, He's interceding and perfecting those. And I'll demonstrate that to you with examples from Scripture as we go through this. Now, the second question I asked is What are the groanings? What's the nature of these groanings? And I want to begin to answer the question by first stating what the groanings are not. So let me disabuse the congregation this morning of the prevailing interpretations of this passage that are false and textually unwarranted. A, a, a quote from MacArthur will help us with this. I don't know if you know how this verse is seen by certain Christian groups today. But MacArthur writes this, Contrary to the interpretation of most charismatics, the groanings of the Spirit are not utterances in unknown tongues. Okay? Much less ecstatic gibberish that has no rational content. As Paul says explicitly, the groans are not even audible and are inexpressible in words, Now, I want you to know, I came into the faith through the charismatic door, all right? And I'm very thankful and grateful that those Christian brothers had enough gospel in them for me to receive Christ. I wouldn't direct you there for your teaching, however. And I always wondered how the groanings of the Spirit could be tongues of the believer if the groanings cannot be uttered. They cannot be uttered. But tongues is an utterance. You see the quandary here? And that's what MacArthur is saying. So I heartily agree with this comment. I've said to you many times that tongues are rational. Just to digress again, talk about tongues for a minute, glossa. They're rational, understandable human languages. They're not ecstatic gibberish. And I was happy to see him take the subject head on. First of all, if the groans cannot be uttered, how is it that the charismatic claims that they are uttered? So that's what the groanings are not. We can dispense with that. So what are the utterances? Now, just like in the case of our first question, there is fundamental disagreement, as you might have imagined, on the source and the nature of the groans in this verse. So what I do in a case like that, because I know the noise, I've been around a long time, I know what they're saying the groanings are, but instead I just focus on the verse once again. And so we read, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us in groanings which cannot be uttered. So who makes the groan? It seems to me unquestionable from the text that it's the Spirit that does the groaning. I mean, that's what I read. I like to go with the plain meaning of the word. So I think it's safe to say that the Spirit does the groaning. Not the believer himself. And I think it's safe to say that a groan is not a happy sound. Isn't that right? I've never groaned in joy. A groan is a sad sound. In fact, a groan is an anguished sound. If you want to hear one, come to my house when I get up off the couch. (laughs) And you'll hear the groaning. The Greek word is stenagmos, and it refers to a cry. A groan is a cry. I mean, that makes sense. Nobody has a problem with that, right? In order to get an idea of the nature of the word, we have to go all the way back to Exodus, though, and we read this. So God heard their groaning, talking about the children of Israel. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God did not think that the groaning was a praise. He knew it was a cry. The previous verse says this, of the children of Israel, and their cry, same word, came up to God because of the bondage, meaning in Egypt. They had something to groan about. Something was hurtful. Something was sad, anguished in their lives. So the groan is a plea. It is a cry. It could even be a desperate petition to a powerful overlord. Pharaoh was their overlord, but he had no compassion. The Lord God became their overlord and had boundless compassion for his people. I'd rather groan to the Lord than to the human overlord. So the groan's unquestionably a cry for help, a cry for God to remember his covenant with us. It's a cry born out of our own human inability to provide certain things for ourselves. It's almost like a frustrated whine because we're too weak to get it right. We're too weak to even think rightly. It comes out of our weakness. But it's a product of faith. I've always told you that not every request of God is a righteous request, but the very act of going to God as the source of our blessings honors Him. At least we're going to the one provider, the one who's able to provide. We're recognizing Him as the only source. We're not saying, He didn't answer my prayer. I'll go elsewhere. You're not allowed to do that. You know that, right? That's called idolatry. It's done all the time. (laughs) So the spiritual weakness that the apostle refers to, is this yearning for strength. We know we're weak. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. And the Spirit empathizes with that, and he groans to the Lord for us. We would have our every prayer answered in the affirmative, right? Our weaknesses dispelled. We'd have our weaknesses empowered. We want to be back. We want to be Whole, we want to be full and ready, but the spirit sees the flaws in our requests. It's it's kind of like the prayer of Paul. Remember when Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, right? And he said, Unless I should be exalted above measure. Actually, he had been given this great revelation, was taken up into the third heaven, he said, right? And now, if I was going to digress now, I'd talk all about the three heavens, but I'm not going to do that. But Paul said, Unless I would be exalted. Above measure, by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Isn't that amazing? When God lifts you up to great heights, he may be afraid that you'll become arrogant about that and give you a little thorn to bring you down. And that's exactly what Paul seems to be saying here, right? Lest I should be exalted by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now we know that Paul's prayer was not perfect because it was not answered, right? It was fraught with human weaknesses, an imperfect understanding that weakness of body and spirit were a hindrance to the apostle's ability to accomplish his mission. He had this thorn. We don't know what it is. Some kind of physical abnormality. Some people think it was... His strain on his eyes, because he mentioned elsewhere that he had this condition in his eyes where he couldn't read um, and see properly. Some people think it was that. It's just a conjecture. But he prayed to the Lord three times that it would be removed. And the Lord did not remove the thorn. And I suggest to you, it's because the prayer was the wrong prayer. But the Holy Spirit intervened. What is stronger than imparted strength to the body, which was what he was looking for, is imparted wisdom in the spirit. To be given strength has merit, but it doesn't have perfection. You know, Samson had great strength, but not much wisdom. If you go back there, I could digress now and tell you, Samson did everything wrong his whole life long. (laughs) Every single thing. And he had the spirit of God, right? To be continually prayerful and mindful of the source of our blessings is a more perfect course. Just to be mindful of the source of our blessings, right? Not the nature of the blessing itself. And so the apostle does get his answer to his prayer. And so God spoke to Paul, and I know God spoke directly to Paul because in my version of Second Corinthians 12, it has red ink in this section, And so it says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, I'm good with your weakness. I know you don't like the thorn. I do like it. I think the thorn is good for you. Now it won't be your glory that comes through. It will be mine. And Paul's conclusion is our conclusion here, friends. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says... I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a man whose prayer was perfected by the Holy Spirit and was offered in human weakness. For what? Son of God. What child of a father would not cry out for his immediate pain and weakness to be dispelled? Give me strength, O Lord. And the Lord would say, I have enough for both of us. That's what he said to Paul. And Paul grew by it. The Holy Spirit clearly perfected the apostles' prayer. He received strength, but not bodily. He received strength in the knowledge that God works in us, even our weaknesses. He works even in our weaknesses, even in our pain, even in our ignorance of our real needs. God is working. And that's the assurance that the Holy Spirit is attending us all the way. And if he were not there all the way, all the time, we would not get there. So I think we can see the groaning spoken of in our verse. We can see it in the life of Paul. And we can see it in the life of Christ. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, his weakness of his inherited humanity, cried out to God. Now, you must remember this. Jesus was fully human. He was tempted in every way as we are. He wasn't superhuman. He was completely human, as you and I are human. And he was completely divine. But we read, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I suggest to you that's the imperfect prayer of his human weakness. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see the natural human side of the Savior in a desperate plea for intervention right alongside the perfected prayer of his deity. His humanity cries out for strength to escape, but his spirit cries out for strength to obey. It's these things put together. That's why I should say very clearly to you today that the weakness spoken of in our text, these are not s- sinful weaknesses. They are just the weakness endemic to our, to our con- human condition. They're only the evidence of our finite motives. And apart from the intercession of the Spirit, our motives remain finite. But with the intercession, they're perfected, and our understanding is increased in the bargain. The groans clearly arise out of the believer's inherent weakness, out of his residual lack of understanding. It's the spiritual equivalent of trying to lift a heavy weight that's too heavy for us. And so a friend comes on up beside us and grabs the other end of the, I don't know, the couch, (laughs) the refrigerator, (laughs) the log, right? The Spirit of God is said to come up alongside us and to help with us in our weaknesses which I take to mean strengthen us, and to intercede in our ignorance, which I take to mean instruct us. Jesus spoke of it when he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead you into all truth. See, they didn't have the spirit yet. So you got this heavy load, but I'm bringing someone in to help you carry it when I leave. That brings us to our third question. And the question is, who makes the groan? Now, it seems to me the text is clear. We read, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit himself makes intercession by groaning. Some insist that that the believer makes the groan, but the Spirit in some ways inspires the groaning. That's one way of looking at it. But if that were the case, I would say that the groanings that cannot be uttered would have to be uttered. It also disturbs the clear rendering of the text. So it's the Spirit who makes the groan, and he does so silently or secretly to the Father. There are those commentators who refuse to admit that the Holy Spirit is the one who groans. Now, they do that on the basis of the fact that he's God, and God, I guess, cannot groan in their opinion. Let me tell you, um, if you have some older versions of the Scriptures, you'll find that the Holy Spirit in in the English versions, is referred to as it. Did you ever notice that in some older versions? The Holy Spirit is referred to as it. He was it in the first Tyndale Bible. But the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a force. He's he's a person. He's a he. And the verses that indicate to us the personality of the Holy Spirit are the ones that show him expressing human emotions or emotions that humans have as well. The Holy Spirit grieves. We know that, right? And so some would say it's not the Spirit because he's incapable of groaning as though God could not be saddened by something. I would say to this that he by his nature is incapable of dying, but he also died. He's incapable of despairing, but he despaired. Could not the cries of Christ on the cross be called groans of despair? It was the desperate humanity spilling out of him as he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, God can groan, and I take it as the Holy Spirit feels our pain and groans before God on our behalf. Going back to the lexicon, I should say to you that stenagmos has another meaning. It can be characterized as grieving. And we know from other places that the Holy Spirit can be caused to grieve, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, it can be done. If the Spirit can grieve, friends, the Spirit can groan. And Paul clearly tells us that he groans. And even though, as God, he does not need to groan, he's empathetic of our inherent need to, and so he groans with us. So the groanings that cannot be uttered become what may be described as an inter-Trinitarian prayer you know what, I just thought of something that I say all the time. I'm going to go back to God groaning. I can tell you that John 11.35 says very plainly, Jesus wept, right? Jesus wept. Weeping is sadness. He was saddened by something. We all have our reasons why. Obviously, Lazarus, his great friend, had died. And he felt the pain of the family. Martha and Mary were there crying. And then it says, Jesus wept. And what did the Pharisees say? See how he loved him. His groaning for his friends was evidence of his love for his friend. The Holy Spirit groans through love of the believer. He feels our pain. So the groanings that cannot be uttered become what may be described as an intertrinitarian prayer. In other words, the Holy Spirit is praying to the Father. I mean, isn't that an awesome thought? The Holy Spirit is praying to the Father. This is the very thing that the apostle affirms to the Corinthians when he said, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So if the spirit knows the thoughts of God, he brings perfect prayers to God the Father. I'll end with verse 27. We'll pick up with this. Next week, but we read, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but he knows. So he prays a better prayer. He perfects our prayer and brings it to the Father. Why? For two reasons. One, so it can be answered, and two, so God can be glorified. Paul wanted the thorn out so God can be glorified. God said, no, I'm more glorified with the thorn in. The he who searches is God the Father. And remember, God does not see as man sees, for God sees the heart, he said to Samuel. He searches our hearts. He finds them wanting in strength. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us before God, perfecting our prayers before him. And so we are continually attended and prayed for by God himself. God is praying for us. Now, all the time, all our lives, he's making intercession for for us, the Spirit of God to the Father God. The Spirit of God speaks to the Father in a way that we'll not be capable of until we stand before him face to face. But thankfully, he's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you and thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives in all these various ways. And particularly this morning, Father, by perfecting our prayers to bring glory to God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.